0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the nearly infinite ways in which our society, culture, and economy are infused from top to bottom with scam culture that's bleeding us dry, both financially and mentally. Clips today are from Thought Slime, Illuminati, The Analysis.News, The Problem with Jon Stewart Podcast, Wisecrack ben jordan james o'brien on lbc and rebel hq with additional members only clips from second thought and big think and stay tuned to the end where i'll suggest what the real core of the problem is
1: Everything in the world is a scam. Subscription services make no sense. They only exist to wring more money out of the consumer by offering upfront savings offset by far greater costs over time. $11 a month, for example, feels like less money than $120, but if you use the service for 11 months, you've already spent more money. It's not that the monthly subscription service is a business model I'm necessarily against, There are plenty of services where it makes perfect sense. A movie streaming service would charge a monthly fee. Of course it would, right? Every time I use that, I cost the company money in the form of server costs and licensing agreements. Plus, these services also tend to make it worth my while by constantly updating their library of content. Not to mention, they're usually cheaper than like buying even one of the movies I'd wanna watch on them anyway. So this is a pretty good deal. But in the case of this teleprompter app, it's sure some bullshit, because this isn't a service I'm expecting to roll out a ton of useful new features over time. And should they do that in the future, and I want those features, I would expect to pay for them then. (laughs) All they gotta do is let me download the fucking software. That's it. They're not streaming Ghoulies in 4K to me every day like the Full Moon app is. And there are plenty of programs with far more complex features, far greater download sizes, and far more utility that are one-time purchases. But Clip Studio Paint, for example, that's just $60, not $5 a month in perpetuity. I bought it like five years ago! I still own it! When they update it, which they do regularly, I get access to the new shit, too, which I will grant you is a luxury that smaller companies probably could not afford. In which case, simply release new versions that I can also buy if I want those new features and additional support. You know... The way software has always worked, there's so much shit like this that we've gotten entirely too comfortable with it. It no longer even registers as something that should piss us off. After all, Photoshop charges a monthly fee, Amazon Prime charges a monthly fee, the extended warranty on your fucking cell phone charges a monthly fee. Don't buy the extended warranty. And there are tons of other ways that shit just squeezes money out of you in small enough increments that you might not even notice it adding up over time. If you buy a video game, you have to basically subscribe to it to get all the post-launch content. Sometimes, the game just straight up charges you a monthly fee to play it. Sometimes, in addition to both the full price of the game, and the fee you are already paying to your console manufacturer's online service. Maybe that's not such a big deal with video games. You don't need to be able to play a video game, and it's not even close to the most unethical thing video games do, but it acclimates us to to the environment where you never truly own anything. You pay continuously and lose access if and when you stop paying, or if they just decide to no longer give you access. In other words, you are renting everything. And I don't mean to focus too much on video games specifically, but they provide very clear examples of this. Do you know how many games I have on my PlayStation that I would lose if I stopped paying Sony for PlayStation Plus? Which I do every month, even though I haven't turned on my PlayStation since like... This summer? Simply out of FOMO. Am I a sucker? Yes, obviously. But just because I, and many people like me, make bad decisions with our money, that doesn't let these companies off the hook for deliberately manipulating us into making those bad decisions. It's easy to say, just cancel your subscription, and it's easy for me to say, yes, obviously that's what I should do, but what if I want to play Metal Gear Solid V later? Or Neo? I'd have to pay full price! I'm never gonna play them, of course, but I simply can't risk it! Now sure, I'm a doo-doo-dum-dum, I grant you this, but is it okay for Sony and companies like them to prey upon my sunk cost fallacy? Do we want to live in a world where All doo-doo-dum-dums just get charged money for being doo-doo-dum-dums? Furthermore, how many people signed up for this service and then completely forgot about it and ended up paying when they didn't even want to? And then you kind of have to wonder if they count on that a little. And maybe that's the reason that so many services, which charge a monthly fee, will give you a free week or something, provided that you give your payment information up front. Don't worry, you can just cancel before the charges start, but will you? Will you remember to do that? The tendency, I think, is to blame consumers for this. Why do we put up with it? Simply vote with your dollars. Choose to only spend on things with better business models. And yes, I suppose that might work in some one-to-one perfect sphere on a frictionless plane, analogy level fantasy world, but we all know it's more complicated than that. It shouldn't be up to random consumers to contend with and defeat multi-billion dollar corporations and their enormous marketing and customer retention departments.
2: In 1959, Rich DeVos, who political calls a boundlessly charismatic man, which ironically is a descriptor used for dictators, he started the company as a tiny little soap business. He and his partner would soon grow the company into a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that relied on independent distributors to sell its products, which nowadays ranges from pretty much anything from vitamins, makeup, energy drinks, basically anything you can think of Amway probably sells a version of it. And that's right. We have somehow miraculously fallen into a two-for-one type episode with multi-level marketing scams mixed in with some shady business dealings and horrific political practices. Yay for us. But Amway isn't just your typical MLM. Rich DeVos and his business partner quickly turned it into a massive company that had nearly $7 billion in sales by 1989 and over 1 million distributors selling their products as distributors spent their days attempting to make as many sales as possible to meet their financial goals against all odds, DeVos was chilling, making something off of every single little sale. Of course, their products were mostly just knockoffs sold under an Amway name, but who cares about that when you're making billions of dollars? But again, when you are making that much money and have the sheer amount of distributors that Amway amassed, people are bound to take notice. And usually not the ones the company wants to be dealing with. In Amway's case in particular, their notoriety came with some special attention from one of our all-time favorite entities with just a hint of sarcasm there, but the FTC. In 1975, the FTC accused Amway of being a pyramid scheme. Their accusations were pretty severe and ranged from Amway restricting distributors' sources and supplies, their advertising, and of course, misrepresenting the income. That all definitely sounds pretty par for the course in the world of MLMs, however, after a lengthy four-year investigation, the FTC found that Amway was in fact not a pyramid scheme by the skin of their teeth, according to the FTC. Amway differed in several ways from pyramid schemes that the commission had challenged. It did not charge an upfront headhunting or large investment fee from new recruits, nor did it promote inventory loading by requiring distributors to buy large volumes of non-returnable inventory. Just because they weren't technically a pyramid scheme, though it definitely seemed to resemble the shape of a triangle, that doesn't mean the company didn't have new rules that they would have to follow to avoid any legal repercussions in the future. They had to do a couple of things like stop misrepresenting representing their profits, earnings and sales. They had to print a disclaimer on the suggested retail price and stop retail price fixing. So it wasn't all roses and butterflies for the company, but they came out looking a lot better than they could have and changed the face of the MLM world forever. As Jeff Babiner put it, had Amway lost, MLM history after 1979 may have been non-existent. Amway's victory paved the way for hundreds of MLM companies that would follow. So yeah, again, thank you so much Amway for paving the way for hundreds of thousands of shitty other fucking companies. But of course, this would not mark the end of legal trouble for the company or for its founders. Only four years after this first big lawsuit, they were hit with another. This time it was for criminal tax fraud. In 1983, the Supreme Court of Ontario found the company guilty of criminal fraud and tax evasion after it was found that they had been making up fake and fictitious invoices and a dummy corporation to build their wealth. They found that Amway had defrauded Canada of an astounding $28 million. As a response, they were slapped with a $25 million fine, the largest in Canadian history at that time. Despite the massive hit to their reputation and their pockets, the founder seemed relatively unfazed. In fact, on the same day that the decision was made, the two owners ran advertisements in over four different American news sources and sent letters to their distributors trying to explain the situation. But they didn't really do a good job of explaining it at all. Instead, they just tried their best to make themselves look good. And oh my God, I have re-recorded this sentence so many times. I know I'm like, whatever, whatever. Because it's... like the founders pleaded guilty, but I keep saying the flounders and I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing that today. The flounders, the fish founders, they pleaded guilty to charges is the point I'm trying to get at. The point is these two pleaded guilty and then they sent out a bunch of letters and ads to make it look like the charges had been merely dropped when that's not the reality of the situation. They took no public responsibility and instead they blamed the advice of corporate officers for the mix up with the law. Then they included this statement regarding the founders' decisions. They chose to make a tremendous personal and financial sacrifice in order to end the ordeal and eliminate this impediment to the future growth and potential of the business. They chose to make this sacrifice by settling now and thus preserving the Amway business opportunity for millions of individuals. And just like that, the company's PR made it seem like employees and distributors should be grateful to the very people who were committing criminal acts and defrauding millions of people. I've read a lot of PR statements in my time, and this one has to be one of the best acts of reframing I've seen ever. Like, no, we didn't pay money because we're guilty. No way, we paid money to save the company. What a personal sacrifice. Unsurprisingly, this work, Amway was barely impacted by the massive scandal, and they just kept right on pushing. And today, Amway's sales are still in the billions of dollars per year. This was just the beginning of the DeVos fortune, and despite every scandal, they continued to grow and gain more power.
3: For people that haven't watched the other episodes, at any rate, a quick definition of predation. Okay, so predation in
4: this context means that you're deceiving people to massively overpay for homes and interest rates um, that you wouldn't do to normal people under market terms. Right. And this is targeted overwhelmingly at blacks and Latinx folks. So it has a discriminatory.
3: And the motivation for someone to sign this is they probably wouldn't otherwise qualify for the loan.
4: Um, the transaction wouldn't qualify. It, it's not even so much they. That's the focus on the borrower. But this, uh, this is a multiple fraud scheme, right? One fraud scheme is the appraisal. So they're extorting, when I say they, the banks are incentivizing the loan brokers to extort the appraisers to dramatically inflate the value of the home. Now, the bigger the home value, A, that means you can approve transactions you would otherwise not approve, but also the bigger the value, the bigger the fee. Uh, in in terms of uh, the home price, and so this makes sense for all the thieves uh, to inflate the appraisals. It also makes the home look safer, and that's part of the art of the fraud scheme, is making a loan that is almost certain to fail look incredibly safe. Right. So if I inflate the appraisal, it looks like, wow, that's a really, you know, that home's worth 400,000 and they only borrowed 380,000 on it. It must be safe.
3: But what's the motivation for the borrower? They must know that this house is way appraised way higher than their neighbors.
4: No, (laughs) no, again, you're the reason you target vulnerable people is that they're far less likely to understand what the true market value of their home is. And, and who of us goes and knows there's an extortion racket by bankers to inflate the value of homes by extorting appraisal, appraisers and blackballing them if they're honest. That wasn't in the papers anywhere. Which of us would have thought? Because we would think it's crazy, right? Why would a lender, a lender's great protection against loss is an honest appraisal? Because these are secured loans, secured by the true market value of the home, not whatever the appraiser says. So an honest banker would want a very conservative appraisal. Not to massively inflate it. So no, normal people don't think in this way at all. Normal folks and the people that are first time home buyers, you know, they're the least likely to be able to go, wait a minute, this, this home is massively overvalued. So that's one of the two kinds of frauds. The other key underwriting fraud wasn't, again, this is novel in uh, 1990. And so it the industry didn't yet call it by the name that the industry would soon adopt behind closed doors. They called them liar's loans. And so people have heard that tu- term and they assume the borrower must be the liar, right? No. <laughs> the loan broker knows the magic ratios that you have to hit to get the loan approved. The loan broker knows the magic ratios, and I mean debt to income and type ratios, um, that uh, also get you a bigger bonus, right? A, p- a kickback paid by the bank. And those are kept secret on a term sheet that is uh, by contract can't be shown to the borrower. Not that the broker wanted to show and inform uh, the uh, borrower in any event. So the lies are put, and this is confirmed by the state investigators. Are it's the lenders and their agents who put the lies in liars' loans. Now, what's a liars' loan? It's where you don't verify the borrower's income, and it is super simple to verify a borrower's income even if they're self-employed. Because the United States, for decades, precisely to make this easy, uh, allows banks to get an agreement under which we authorize the bank to get what's called a transcript of our taxes. And that just means an easily machine-readable. And so for next to no bucks with virtually no delay, uh, and they can charge us a fee if they want to even, right? Right. Uh they can get the bank can get exactly how much income we reported on our tax returns. And here's a key thing. How many of us inflate our income deliberately on our income tax returns? Not Nobody. too many, right, for obvious reasons. So it's a super reliable thing. So it's absolute BS that liar's loans were developed for self-employed people that could, where you couldn't verify their income. That is a total lie uh about all of this so there these two fraud mechanisms are employed typically simultaneously by the loan broker and again if i inflate the borrower's income and they st- we will to go forward in time there'll eventually be statistics on this and on the average inflation was 60% <laughs> or more that's crazy the borrower's income no it's not crazy because it makes the loan look safer
3: all right let me remind people of something you told me about four times until it really sunk in my head because everyone's thinking well why would the banks do this and your answer was don't think banks think the individual scooping up the fees because they don't mind screwing their own banks oh no
4: indeed the the famous article by two Nobel laureates in economics is looting the economic underworld of bankruptcy for profit. You bankrupt your bank as the CEO, and it makes you a ton of money. Uh, And if you you want, I can explain why that works and why trying to do it uh, by making good loans doesn't work as a sure thing. You want that? Okay.
3: Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. Uh, let me just remind people about the title of your book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Go ahead.
4: Okay. So, what w- we we consider the counterfactual. What if we tried to do the same scam, but by making good loans instead of incredibly crappy loans, right? So, how many people who have incredibly good credit are unable to borrow money in America? yeah it comes pretty close to zero. okay yeah,
3: pretty close. So.
4: so if I want to expand, remember the formula, the recipe is how we called it, this uh, for fraud recipe, the first element is grow like crazy, which means typically fifty percent or beyond, right And literally there were 300 fraudulent savings and loans growing at a minimum fifty percent annually. Now the rule of thumb in the industry is 25% growth and you die to give you an idea of how insane this is. So I want to grow really, really fast over 50% annually. How do I get good loans? Say I'm making 500,000 loans and I want to grow 50%. I got to make 750,000 loans. But I'm going to make them, I'm trying in this theory to make them good loans. But there aren't these other 250,000 people who have great credit quality and everything else um, who have any difficulty getting loans. So what do I have to do? I have to buy market share, as they call it in business. I have to reduce my price, my interest rate that I charge. And is that a very good way of maximizing profits? Not so much, right? Cut your price. But worse, what happens? What will my competitors do? They'll do the same thing. So they don't lose their best customers. And so at the end of the day, is this a great fraud strategy? No, all of us lose money (laughs) under this strategy. Conversely, I can grow 50% a year because there are tons of people millions, tens of millions of people in a country the size of America that cannot repay their loans. And I can charge them a premium rate of interest because they can't get loans as easily and because statistically, they're likely to be less financially sophisticated than other people who already own homes and have much higher incomes and all those types of things. So these, this is a great thing as Akerlof and Romer, the two Nobel laureates agreed in this paper on looting. This kind of fraud is a sure thing. And you deliberately make terrible loans that you know are going to bankrupt the bank. But you, the CEO, are going to walk away wealthy and hundreds of thousands of others are going to walk away wealthy. All the loan brokers, all the officers along the way with that two trillion dollars in fees generated by these uh, scams.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, They're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash left.
5: When I read about how these crypto exchanges and Uh, companies have been set up it seems that the biggest mistake they've made is they are mirroring the worst excesses of the actual stock market but with a much more volatile commodity it seems like they've centralized things there's only a few like big crypto exchanges it all the conflict of interest and corruption inherent in our more standard markets they seem to have mirrored and they've they've lost the lessons of sort of what this was supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I I'd like to say that
6: this is some sort of innovative and newfangled way to separate people from their money, but I think I think the real answer is it's the same schemes transported to something new with different acronyms. I mean, uh you, you what you have here is you had two separate companies owned uh, essentially by the same person you had ftx and alameda mm-hmm. research
5: now FTX, ftx was the uh exchange that's right. where people could go on and, and trade different uh cryptocurrencies where right. alameda was just kind of a, a simple hedge fund yeah so mm-hmm. and and alameda was a customer on ftx so- well that that seems completely <laughs> above board. Why would that be why would that be something that would draw people's attention? <laughs> well, not
6: only that, but they didn't have to play by the rules that everybody else played by on what? FTX uh regarding uh margins and 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 leverage. Um,
5: yes, apparently not.
6: Yeah. So, uh, you know, the exchange is is supposed to make its money essentially through you know, small fee uh, fees on transactions, right? Mm-hmm. So they are supposed to have. It, it's basically a bank. There are depositors. There are these these entities that are trading on the exchange, mm-hmm. and they get a little bit of money from uh, each trade, and that's how they sustain themselves. Uh, the the number one thing you are not supposed to do if you're a bank or a bank like object, like an exchange, mm-hmm. is take the
5: customer money. And gamble with it. Okay, hold on one second now. Now you've really stepped into something. I have, because if I I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that is the foundation of American capitalism. That's when they when they repealed Glass Steagall. I'm pretty sure if you looked at the fine print, it said, oh, and by the way, uh, if you want to place like a really wild long shot bet using these deposits on, let's say, subprime derivative bundles, <laughs> knock yourself out.
6: Right, but I mean the point you make is is the correct one that we solved this problem almost a hundred years ago yes uh, and, <laughs> and we 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 continue to to uh. fall into it over and over again so so just like mF global just like uh you know some of the the mortgage derivatives uh that that we saw the
5: savings and loan scandals of of uh the Keating Five. Just like this SNL scandal.
6: I saw an economic historian say it's like the South Seas Company from the 18th century. Oh, my and This God. is just the same kind of thing. They took customer money. They made a bunch of bets. They lost those bets. And the customers wanted their money back and they didn't have it. Whatever fun name that you want to put on it, it's right. the same damn thing that we've seen over and over again.
5: And the thing that I find... Most galling about all of this is the sort of, well, crypto is so difficult to understand and that, you know, there's no way that we could have seen this or foreseen it. It's it's this brand new world as though, as we talked about earlier, the general tenets of the corruption that exists between our government and the markets and all these big players, you could substitute out Lehman. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Ken Griffin at Citadel. I mean, mm-hmm. how is this different than Ken Griffin running a hedge fund at Citadel and also being the most gigantic market maker that we have? Yeah. And who's the biggest donor to all kinds of politicians? Right. It's Ken Griffin. I mean, the markings for corruption are all over our system, but they want to point to this as it's an anomaly. The, the conflicts of interest are, are very familiar and,
6: and dull.
7: As Derek Thompson's recent piece in The Atlantic put it, something beyond rising energy and labor costs is leading to sticker shock on once-cheap urban amenities. Clearly, something has changed since Airbnb first hit the scene in 2008. This was the perfect moment for the gig economy to make its grand debut, as the US was reeling from the Great Recession. The unemployment rate had doubled and other workers faced furloughs and reduced hours. This made alternatives to classic employment seem quite appealing like a potential safety net. As economist Juliet Shore writes in After the Gig, in the years following 2008, people came to believe that digital technology could solve the problem of work. The thinking went that algorithms and crowdsourcing could do the work of bosses, while software could reorganize economic activity into a person-to-person structure. In this way, she notes that, This empowers individuals to take control of their lives. Vast swaths of the economy, especially in service, are ripe for this transformation. This vision came to be called the sharing economy. Note that we're going to focus on the United States and we're going by scholar Luigi Zingale's definition of the gig economy as anytime you have a digital platform that coordinates a large amount of people doing a job. It's the case of Uber. It's the case of Lyft. It's the case of Airbnb. It's the case of Fiverr. It's the case of the Mechanical Turks on Amazon. And this model changed the very idea of what labor could be. It seemed to offer freedom and flexibility without compromising wages via the magic of part-time or gig-based work. For folks without spare rooms to rent out, Uber launched in 2009, followed by Fiverr in 2010, Rover in 2011, Instacart in 2012, and beyond. There it was a gig for seemingly every skill set. Whether your specialty was picking the ripest avocado, bagging the of a stranger's dog or copy editing somebody's novel. Plus, you could hypothetically make your own hours and be your own boss with your earning potential limited only by your willingness to work hard. This caught on fast. By 2016, the Pew Research Center found that nearly 25% of American adults were making money from gig apps. And the startup founders behind the apps preached the gospel of Silicon Valley utopianism, promising staggering innovation. Like Uber's grand plans for self-driving cars or Amazon delivering your year's supply of floss by drone, it would be a brand new economy. At first, it seemed to be working. That is, if you didn't follow the money. If you're paying $7 for that ride, how is your Uber driver making a living wage? Well, A, they probably weren't, and B, the baffling bankroll was thanks to venture capitalists, who allowed gig economy apps to operate at a loss. This was based on the assumption that in the future, when they've cornered the market on, say, self-driving cars that's when they'll really see a profit. In the meantime, people got used to the idea of $7 rides. As Thompson writes, for the past decade, people like me, youngish, urbanish, professionalish, got a sweetheart deal from Uber, the Uber for X clones that vaguely pretended to be tech companies. Almost each time you or I ordered a pizza or hailed a taxi, the company behind that app lost money. In effect, these startups backed by venture capital were paying us, the consumers, to buy their products. But are those glory days over if consumers are no longer getting too-good-to-be-true prices? Because the gig economy has always run on underpaid labor. And to understand this, we need to contextualize where gig work as we know it came from. As scholar Lewis Hyman explains, the decades following the New Deal witnessed the golden age of stable, long-term employment when union membership was skyrocketing and companies competing for top talent started offering things like generous wages and employer-based health care. But after the economic boom in the 1950s, corporate structures started to change. At the top, short-term consultants started replacing executives, while at the bottom, union workers were replaced by cheaper day laborers. And while these moves helped businesses seem lean and therefore more profitable, this also decreased job security. This, as Hyman argues, was indicative of a sea change in how corporations function. They went from primarily trying to minimize risk to primarily trying to maximize profits. It wasn't about keeping your family company running and making quality goods for decades. It was about making bank today. And this was a whole new way of looking at business. The risk-taking entrepreneur thus became the capitalist ideal. And in pursuit of standalone, unabashed profits, Short-term returns became the new goal. And one way to make sure your quarterly ROI looks shiny and efficient is to hire flexible laborers who take up less of your operating costs overall. The tech industry of the 70s and 80s relied on this business model. Short-term investments partnered with flexible production to great growth and success. It also, as Hyman points out, relied upon the use of undocumented labor at an industrial scale by the way of subcontractors who were paid on a per project basis. The rise of the internet would greatly influence how work is sourced and conducted, making it even easier to source temp workers via Craigslist or apps, no agency necessary. These workers would be known as independent contractors. There are big benefits to digitally sourcing contractors as Jamie Woodcock and Mark Graham explain in their book, The Gig Economy. For one, it adds a layer of invisibility and isolation that obscures the people doing the work. It's hard to know how many colleagues you have at TaskRabbit after all, if there is no way to communicate with them. And for many of these apps, the sheer number of willing contractors has created an oversupply of labor. Woodcock and Graham write, as a result of this oversupply, individual workers have very little power to negotiate wages or working conditions, which is why workers way back when started forming unions to begin with. But unionizing is virtually impossible for today's gig workers, because to form a union, you have to be an employee. And people who work for Uber, Lyft, Grubhub, Airbnb, and so on are not actually employees. This may sound like a technicality, but it's essential to the way these companies function. Unsurprisingly, when faced with a 2020 California ballot initiative, Prop 22, which would exempt companies like Uber from a state law that would have required these companies to treat workers like formal employees, DoorDash, Lyft, Uber, Instacart, and Postmates spent $204 million on a publicity campaign supporting it. See, if somebody is your employee, you're obligated to provide things like overtime, bargaining rights, and healthcare. According to the Seattle Times, Classifying your workforce as independent contractors instead can save companies 30% or more on labor costs. And for companies that were definitely not all making a profit, this would have made their tenuous situations even more slippery. In the end, nearly 60% of voters agreed that all the bells and whistles of formal employment were unnecessary especially if it jacked up prices on services they had come to rely on. The sheer amount of money poured into this campaign made Prop 22 the most expensive ballot initiative in US history, and arguably, it paid off. Except uh, except not for workers, though. Definitely didn't pay off for them. In this way, we can see the gig economy as being emblematic of a bigger shift in the power of labor. As sociologist Alexandria Ravenel concluded, For all its app-enabled modernity, the gig economy resembles the early industrial age. The sharing economy is truly a movement forward to the past. That is, a past before workers had all the protections they gained through striking and organizing since the 19th century, and through the protections of the New Deal.
0: Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com
8: support. For years, for an exhaustive amount of time now, I've been collecting data from hundreds of independent musicians and small record labels, and I finally feel certain enough to tell you exactly how Spotify is, how do I put this, a grift, a heist. About two years ago, when I made my last video on this topic, I looked at the data and I noticed that the amount of money streaming services paid artists was sinking by a whole lot, and I wondered to myself if they had pulled a massive bait-and-switch scheme with royalties, and it wasn't until I got my hands on this the entire contract agreement between Sony Music and Spotify that I realized that it absolutely was a bait and switch and major labels were completely aware of it. So much so that Sony Music got paid with huge non-refundable advances from Spotify. And in every case I looked into, none of those advances went to the artists. The initial contract with Sony in 2011 paid $25 million to Sony per year, plus $9 million in ad spots, which Sony could then resell. Sony's advances were tied to market share and other variables on an annual basis, so they would keep rising year after year. Spotify knew that if they wanted you to become a Spotify customer and subscriber first, they needed to have the biggest names in music in their library right from the start. And to do this, they threw millions of venture capital dollars at the media conglomerates that own the licenses for the music on an annual basis rather than just promising a fair royalty. So if you're an independent musician and if you ever wondered if Beyonce's label is getting more per stream than you are, the answer is such a complicated form of of course that you're better off just drinking whiskey until you fall asleep laughing maniacally at how unfair the world is. So why would musicians sign up in the first place? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. To start, most musicians want to adapt to the next big thing and music streaming effectively made acts processing music so easy that music piracy started dropping, not unlike the effect Netflix had on movie piracy. But musicians couldn't just upload their music to Spotify. Spotify and iTunes couldn't be bothered to actually manage their own library that justifies their existence in the first place. They made independent musicians pay for the privilege for third-party services like TuneCore or DistroKid. A little side note here, Spotify would actually buy a minority stake in DistroKid so they could monetize their own lack of functionality. After a few years, if you wanted to be an an independent musician and have your name alongside the bigger artists that Spotify was actually secretly paying up front for, you didn't have any other option. And for someone like myself who came into Spotify having already been making a living as a professional musician, once the payments started coming in, it started making sense. I won't bore you with the details, I already did that in this video, but once Spotify and the other streaming services dominated every other form of music distribution, including radio, take a wild guess what happened. Musicians got f***ed. Here's a way of putting it that tech investors might understand. This is how much Spotify paid independent musicians per stream on average over time. Without a doubt, it is a bait and switch, especially when Spotify subscriber growth looks like this. Now, when I pointed this out in a video 2 years ago, I got quite a bit of pushback from investors or day traders who I assume had some sort of stake in Spotify, and I couldn't fathom how they weren't seeing this as a bad thing. It's actively squeezing the life out of the one thing that you're reselling. If Uber drivers were paid so low, that they couldn't afford fuel, that would not be good news for investors. I think a lot of people in the music industry have been completely blindsided by this because the modern Silicon Valley business model operates so differently. Most people would describe Spotify's business strategy as something called blitzscaling, and it's both clever and stupid at the same time. The goal is to grow at an absurdly rapid pace and get as high of a market valuation as quickly as possible, and then, after you've succeeded at that, then you find out if the business can be profitable and how to make that work. When a business is founded on blitzscaling or fastscaling, if growth slows down before a profitable business model is discovered, everything goes kaput. It's all or nothing. So the top priority above all other things is to keep growing. And in cases such as MoviePass or Uber, the customer gets a slight lifestyle upgrade paid for by a pool of venture capital investments. Now, in Spotify's case, the venture capital allowed the initial membership fees to be low and the royalties to be relatively high. That way, more artists would get on board and keep their music there. But since Spotify wouldn't dare risk slower growth of subscribers, their immense losses are bandaged and subsidized from independent musicians, both by cutting their royalties and charging them for listing prioritization on things like the marquee program. Unfortunately, due to Spotify's market share and absolute dominance and presence on everybody's phones, as a result, the perceived value of music in general has dropped to unsustainable levels. And an extremely optimistic take would be saying that the music economy is at critical mass and not utterly irreparable. One might ask is Spotify's business model functional without a profit? And the answer to that depends on who you ask and what you mean by functional. Do you remember earlier in this video when I told you about the major labels having backdoor agreements with Spotify? Well, a lot of that was huge amounts of stocks in Spotify being transferred to the record labels, and almost all the labels dumped that stock right after it went public. The CEO is worth $5 billion. Employees like Don Ostroff get about $7.5 million in salary. Third-party companies like Distrokid that exist solely to charge you to put your music on Spotify have a billion-dollar valuation. and. Spotify's investors have made, well, about that. Now, I'm no big-city economist, but it seems to me that a blitz-scaling strategy would work best with rock-bottom interest rates, and if you haven't noticed, that parade came to a screeching halt. When those rates were low, Spotify for a long time has had a lot of trouble finding a profit, but it's about to get a whole lot worse, and this isn't news to most investors. But the much bigger issue with the streaming platform business model that investors seem to be wildly ignoring is that None of these platforms own any of the assets that they're reselling. They don't even have a license for them for the next fiscal year. Let's say that there was some sort of, I don't know, a viral Reddit post that created some sort of pseudo-online musician union, or let's just say that Joe Rogan said something else completely insane that was the straw that broke the camel's back. If there was just some sort of small movement or occurrence where a few thousand independent artists with fan bases similar to mine decided to remove their music from Spotify today, it. Very well could create a snowball effect with subscribers. And of course, as a customer, if you put your AirPods in and picked up your phone expecting to hear some artists that you're accustomed to listen to and all of a sudden weren't able to find them, you're not going to recite your loyalty to Spotify. You'll just use a platform that has the artists you listen to. The point is, This platform is extremely fragile and it is increasingly neglecting the only asset that it has. If you're an investor who has a stake in Spotify or music streaming platform and you think that there's a chance that they will stabilize and eventually make a profit or a steady long-term profit, I can tell you after spending years excruciatingly analyzing both the artist and business side of this microeconomy, I am as certain as I could possibly be that you are wrong.
9: Alfie's in Liverpool. Alfie, what can you tell us?
10: Uh, hi, James. Oh, hi. Um, just a bit of uh, context for me. I'm a twenty two year old guy who's just graduated from university this summer, just gone. Um, and my dissertation was on... Actually, it started on a, a, a discussion about social media, but I just ended up having to write it about sort of incel culture and, and how it develops and where Gosh. it sort of comes from. And what the sort of solution is, because once you do begin to read into it, you begin to realise there's a much wider web of issues that all contribute to this sort of uh, problem. I'm sure. Um, Starting with, basically, there's, there's two sort of parts to it. One is, is how young men find themselves in a situation where they feel the feelings that incels claim to sort of uh, have as their sort of central yes. motive, and then also where that turns into, because every young man at every single point in their life, you know, if any sort of, um, any creed sort of feels those sorts of insecurities, yes. um, is how that turns into aggression and violence and just the nasty side of it afterwards, because there is a, a fundamental difference there. Um, It sort of starts with, if you you picture the sort of um, life of a a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old lad, or even getting older, you know, I'm 23 and I remember having social media when I was that age, but nowhere near in the capacity that it's sort of involved in the lives of young people now. it goes back to this classic classic thing that sex sells and that sort of sexualized content and and not necessarily sexually explicit but on that sort of gray area content is is everywhere at the moment and it's that every single person in the world who's all over your phone screens all over your mates phone screens all over your computer on your ipad on the youtube content you're watching on the tiktok you're watching everything is at least in some capacity sharing a sexually explicit level of content it it just means that when you are at home by yourself in bed at ten and ten PM and you should be in bed for school tomorrow. Yes. And you flip into the TikTok and you just see, you know, I don't need to describe it, but lots of sort of like content. You feel, Well, yeah, why am I not part of this world? Why can't I be part of this world? And then you, you tie that in with, you know, the insecurity that most young men feel anyway in school about their, their position in social hierarchy and how sex plays into that. Yes. So all of a sudden you end up with a nation of young men who feel it's, it's way way more insecure about their sort of place in the sort of sexual hierarchy than they have done in, in generations ever before and,
9: and how do that, i then leap to hating women
10: so then another thing is for when you're on instagram and you spend about 15 20 minutes on a fresh account and you're using it as, as i was at the time as a 22 year old man it worked out really really quickly that i was a 22 year old man and tiktok's even better at it than instagram tiktok is but these are just two examples. infernal
9: at it right so they know what yeah. is going to let's they know exactly push who you are your buttons
10: really. Exactly. And because you push their buttons, right, physically, and they can then push yours. So then, all of a sudden, when you're someone who's liking lots of sexual content because 17-year-old lads just do that, and you realize, okay, let's put all of this in front of you, oftentimes, it's not surprising this is how their algorithm works, there's a massive overlap between the people who want to access sexual content and the people who feel left out from it, which means that when you've got an Andrew Tate repost account or whatever, the same people who are liking all the sexual stuff are also liking all the Andrew Tate stuff, which is... Saying that, well, you're you're a young man. You deserve sex. You deserve to be involved in this culture. This culture is happening without you. There is a big sex party happening that you're not part
9: of. So it, again, fix it. I, I, again, it's it's the mythical conspiracy it's the totally. idea ah, okay that's that's it and it's, it then. And, it's
10: and, and the word the word is a grifter right It's it's, yeah. it's it's pretending that you're there to support the young men when actually you're there for a paycheck and yeah. saying that being able to provide the answer to an insecurity that people have that's fundamentally founded on a myth is really really profitable in the age of such vicious and successful what, algorithms what, that what, identify what are the
9: people. what would be the components of the incel myth for example.
10: Sure. So it's, so the, the, the fundamental idea is that, yeah, it's, it's sort of as we was saying, is that it's, yeah. this, is, this is a women problem. It's the, 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 the problem isn't about you being able to identify your own reality and identify the sort of parts of your personality that you might want to change if you want to change the output of your lifestyle. Right. But it's actually more so that it's people are withholding this from you, that you deserve it and it's a yeah. right that belongs to you, just like everyone is, just like you see all the influencers doing on the internet. You, you Everyone wants to be like an influencer, and a big part of that is the lifestyle that they permit. And I also think that the other sort of proponents of this myth is that, like, yeah, is that, that, that it's, it's, it's an entitlement thing, and that, that Well, this is back to
9: the days when women weren't allowed to say no.
10: Exactly. Exactly. That's when and, it gets. Yeah, that's and, and, that's
9: the point at which it gets horrible
10: which is where the sort of Andrew Tate anti-feminism thing...
9: Anti-feminism well, let me read massive. you something. Let oh, me yeah. read you... Go so- I'm going to read you two things. Uh, one for reference, and the second one, just whether or not, as a result of your thesis, you can give any help to Stephen in Dundee. Sure. So the first one is anonymous. I have a best friend of 10 years who I met at university. He was once extremely liberal and lefty, like myself. However, yeah. after being single for many years, he's turned to Andrew Tate as a role model. Most recently, yeah. he was telling me that women bear some responsibility for being sexually assaulted or raped. As a rape and sexual assault victim it broke me to hear this and resulted in me taking some time away from the friendship he still today believes he was quotes cancelled by his best friends for this it's terribly sad that sounds yeah. like a textbook case of what you've been describing. Absolutely. And it escalates Absolutely. then of course because the victimhood gets magnified by the reactions of... And they
10: become, they become more isolated and the, people, that, that, the person who's texted you would be the person to interview in that life but because yeah. it's so difficult and triggering for them. There's no one there oh, then. Really? They've isolated themselves.
9: Okay. And now this is where you might be able to help. I don't know. This is from Steve. He sure. says, my 14-year-old son's doing really well in school. He seems to have plenty of friends. Girls seem to like him. He's sporty. All of which seems really positive. But he comes defensive and gets very moody when challenged even lightly on Andrew tate and the views and teachings that he is showing to young boys he he believes he doesn't listen to the bad bits about women and and sexism but andrew tate is innocent and has done nothing wrong and is part of the inspiration for him going to the gym and getting himself fit it's really difficult to counter james as they watch it on social media and it slips past without even knowing it's going on hopefully he sees through it but it's really concerning that's that's textbook but much earlier in the case absolutely yeah what can he yeah, do? Think, can he do anything, so, do you
10: think? Yeah, I, I think we can, right? I'm, I'm hopeful, after my thesis, I wasn't going into it, but now oh, I'm hopeful there, a, there's a solution. Totally. I think, I mean, it's not gonna, you know, no one's going to be surprised to hear that this is the answer from, from my perspective, but I think you just need to talk to your kids and sort yeah. of from a, from a much younger age I think we, we have a big issue in this, in this country particularly but also around the world and this is changing over time where we're beginning to learn that having conversations with kids about sort of sexual health and sexual well-being is really important from a young age it's just making sure that young men when they're like not after they've already been presented with the Andrew Tate stuff because then talking to them yeah. the big thing about Andrew Tate is he says that anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is part of the machine or whatever so it's not about dealing with it once they've already began on that slide it's about making sure that from, uh, this is why I think I'm in such a good position to sort of understand this from an objective perspective is that my parents made this effort with me when I was very young. Right. Just understand that when you are poised with those ideas, as intoxicating as they can be and as as much as they sound right and they answer all your questions, you actually just have to look at it a bit critically and try and understand why that person might be. And again, this would solve our Brexit problem, (laughs) it would solve our Tory problem, it would solve our misogyny problem addressing it at a young age with men and being like, look, we need, we need to talk about these things before it becomes a problem in their lives. It means that then we're going to have a generation of men who are <laughs> You'll sad to say that this is this is the baseline of what we're aiming for, but a generation of men who are critical thinkers, and, yeah. and women, and whoever, but specifically this conversation.
9: Well, it's susceptibility to grifters. I mean, that's why you just gave us the, 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 the litany, the list of grifts. That's really helpful. It's great that you're more optimistic than you were going in, but, yeah, totally. but, but the problem is getting bigger, right, at the moment? Or do you think that the exposure of Tate now in a much more mainstream way will actually diffuse some of his...
10: Tate being the biggest thing in the world at the moment is, is a good thing for, for, the, for the culture and for the conversation. But it, Andrew Tate isn't the first person to have been doing this. There's been a line of people exactly of like course. him, some worse, yes. some not quite as severe, behind him. And there's a line queuing up behind him because now, because back in the day when it wasn't even that profitable to be like this, just to yeah. have the internet clout alone was reason to do it. Cloud. And now all of a sudden you've got a massive paycheck at the end of the line as well for people. Yeah. There's a huge, huge, huge queue of people looking to be the Andrew Tate role in kids' lives. We've got to make sure that as people and as people putting our output into the world, we are good young Role models for young men who can access. It's like I was saying, that person who became so isolated because all yes. their friends just didn't want to associate with them anymore. All of a sudden, who is there in their life to tell them and challenge them? There's no one. So then they're just free falling through this yeah. rabbit hole. And as you know, as the calls have said before, and as we know with, every, with with all forms of extremism, once you're in and there's no one there to challenge it, it is an absolute free fall, and you find yourself at the bottom very quickly.
11: to the night my parents got scammed for $21,000. And here's how. The scammers used AI to create a voice that sounded like me. They used social media to come up with enough information about me to convince them they were speaking to me. Um, obviously, it wasn't. I suggest that you speak to your family immediately about creating or instituting a password that must be disclosed before any transfer of money occur because even if they are speaking to you from their point of view it's not the future is
12: here and it is terrifying that was tiktok user benno 56 sharing the story of how his parents were scammed out of tens of thousands of dollars by fraudsters who used ai to clone their son's voice that may seem like something out of science fiction but the technology is already here And it's already hurting the vulnerable.
11: And AI has more than enough capability and social media discloses more than enough about you to convince anybody that it is you. Prevent this from happening. It cost my parents $21,000.
12: With AI technology advancing faster than ever, a growing number of fraud victims are realizing just how much information is out there for bots to feed on, and how scary accurate those machines become after digesting the contents of your social media. For older generations who may not fully understand how advanced AI has become, This latest evolution poses a real threat, and the scammer who defrauded this TikToker's parents wasn't done. He called back the next day and did his best to keep the money flowing.
11: So a simple follow-up to the scam is that the next day, which was yesterday, my parents received a call from the scammer who continued the story. He said, uh... Uh, that he needed more money for specific reasons. And my parents finally said, okay, we know it's a scam. We've been scammed. And immediately he dropped his facade and he said, what gave it away? My dad was stunned by this. My mom went hysterical.
12: There's a brazen impunity to this whole grift. And as we've seen in videos of other less technologically advanced scams, most scammers don't fear getting caught. So it's no surprise that this scammer dropped the act right away and had the audacity to ask the victim's parents what he could do to stop from being caught in the future.
11: Uh, my dad said, well, my son called us that evening and he said he, we never spoke to him and it is what it is. Um, my mom said, why do you do this? And he said, it's a job. My dad said, what did you make? He said, I made a thousand bucks. The reality behind this is it's well-funded and it's a day job. Just make a password. Believe me or not, Make a password. It's not a big ask."
12: It can be hard to believe that scamming innocent people is just a job, but that's the case for so many who are involved in the dark world of fraud. And it isn't just the tech illiterate or the elderly who are at risk. These new AI-enabled fraudsters are using their technology to commit crimes on a scale we're simply not prepared for. Take this story from 2019, when a UK-based CEO was scammed out of almost $250,000 after falling victim to an AI-generated deepfake. Those calls were so accurate, they convinced the CEO he was actually talking to his boss, even down to the conversational flow of his boss's casual style. Those scammers were never apprehended. Or take this story from 2021 when an organized crime racket used AI voice cloning to pull off a $35 million bank heist that stretched from Hong Kong to Dubai. Again, voice cloning was good enough to fool senior executives into thinking they were speaking to someone they knew very well. In fact, they were talking to fraudsters. Creating artificial voices is now easier than ever, enabling what experts call quick fakes. These are deep fakes that don't take much time or effort, but sound just like the real thing. And with the newest voice synthesis models, it only takes a few moments of real speech to accurately model your voice. Scammers are now able to steal your voice with something as simple as a fake wrong number call. In fact, we know exactly how long it takes for a scammer to steal your voice. If they're using something similar to Microsoft's latest technology, it will only take them three seconds. That's right. Watch this.
4: Microsoft released an artificial intelligence tool named as Valley that can replicate people's voices just by listening three seconds audio of their speech.
12: And it's really good, too. Take a listen to just a few of the quick captures Microsoft used to prove their model.
3: We were more interested in the technical condition of the station than in the commercial part.
2: We were more interested in the technical condition of the station than in the commercial part. If
12: our government wants to keep up with advances in deepfake technology, well, they're falling dangerously behind the times. Not only are there no laws regarding technologies like this, Most members of Congress don't even know voice cloning is a thing that exists, and they're up against some of the most sophisticated tech scammers in the world. That's bad news. There is one step you can take to protect yourself from being the victim of deepfake fraud. Set up a password with your family that should be used whenever anyone has doubts about who's on the other end of that call. That simple approach would have protected all of the victims in this video, and it may well protect you in the future.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Thought Slime on YouTube breaking down the manipulative psychology of subscription software. Illuminati explained the birth of multi-level marketing. Theanalysis.news spoke with Bill Black about the institutionalized scams in the home financing business. The Problem with Jon Stewart podcast talked about how the biggest problems with crypto are actually scams that are at least a hundred years old. Wisecrack broke down the scam behind the gig economy. Ben Jordan explained the unsustainable and unethical economics of Spotify. James O'Brien on LBC spoke with a caller about the grift that is the red-pilling economy of the manosphere preying on the incel community and insecure men and boys everywhere. And Rebel HQ from TYT explained just one of the scams enabled by next-generation AI voice cloning. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Second Thought, explaining the big scam of neoliberal economics itself, the promise to rid
11: us of bureaucracy. Americans really hated the Soviet Union, so anything that made their government seem anything like it was a super effective way to promote capitalist economics. And at the core of this discourse was the promise that capitalism would solve the problem of bureaucracy, and in the process, most everything else. And Big Think
0: took on the biggest scam of all, our conception of money.
4: Money for us is your life energy. The value of money to you is how much of you, you invested in getting it. Money is something that's abstract and seems unlimited, but you understand that your life is limited. To hear that, and have all of our bonus content
0: delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear briefly from you. Your
10: episode about abducted children needs a trigger warning, buddy, or a content warning. I know it says in the title, but I don't look. I just click the next episode. I don't think I'll be. I don't think I'll be listening to this one. I'm on like clip three. I don't. I don't think I can get any further. Wow.
0: Now, that caller is talking about episode 1539, titled Stolen Children is Stolen History, Heritage, and Culture, and that point is very well taken. He's absolutely right that I should have explained a bit more about what was coming in the show, and not just to give a warning about what people may have trouble handling, but also the second half of the show that I really, really hope... People won't miss. So, I've already re recorded and republished the introduction of that episode. But in the original version, I somehow managed to forget to talk about the discussion of the Indian Child Welfare Act, which dominates the second half of the show. So, if there's anyone else out there who was turned off by either the description or the first few clips of that episode, the way the caller was, I really encourage you to at least listen to the second half to get an understanding of what is at stake for Native sovereignty with the Indian Child Welfare Act being challenged before the Supreme Court. I think the historical context given in the beginning of the episode is important, but the case under review right now described in the second half is critical. And finally today, to wrap up on uh, this conversation about scam culture, I have a couple more deep cuts that I think we may have only discussed on bonus episodes and may not have made their way to the big show. The first is the French philosopher whose name I'm going to butcher, Jean Baudrillard. Like Marx, he was a critic of capitalism, but he was also a critic of Marx himself. And to explain, this is from an article titled... Jean Baudrillard, Marx and Alienation, and this is from ceasefiremagazine.co.uk. Baudrillard criticizes Marxism for ignoring the underlying level at which people are constructed as workers. He argues that categories of labor and production actually capture and repress desire, particularly when applied to non capitalist societies. Instead of a primary dispute between workers and bosses about the exploitation of labor power, Baudrillard sees a primary divide between conformity inside the system and subversion by those outside. The truly radical class struggle is the struggle against being enclosed as labor, unquote. So in short, Marx focuses entirely on giving power to labor, an admirable cause, but in doing so fails to recognize that it isn't only the exploitation from capitalists that is the problem, but that framing people as sources of labor power, as capitalists do, is dehumanizing in and of itself. And so maintaining and and continuing that frame doesn't help break out of the system it's not a truly radical struggle against being enclosed and confined and defined as labor so keep that in your mind and then my second deep cut reference is from the book at the dawn of everything by david graber this is a passage quoting a debate between a french colonist and a native of the windat nation in north america debating the relative qualities of their societies around the turn of the 18th century and the frenchman had argued that it's their institutions things like judges and institutional punishment that make the french a better society because they can punish the wicked and keep order and the native explains his perspective that It's not people who are wicked and are in need of punishment, but it's actually money that makes them that way. So this is the native Kandiaronk who says, I have spent six years reflecting on the state of European society, and I still can't think of a single way they act that's not inhuman. And I genuinely think this can only be the case as long as you stick to your distinctions of mine and thine. I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils, the bane of souls and slaughterhouse of the living. To imagine one can live in the country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one could preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigues, trickery, lies, betrayal, insincerity. Of all the world's worst behavior, fathers sell their children, husbands their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, friends are false, and all because of money. In light of all this, tell me that we, when that, are not right in refusing to touch, or even so much as look at, silver. In essence, quoting from the authors of The Dawn of Everything, summarizing this idea, the whole apparatus of trying to force people to behave well would be unnecessary if France did not also maintain a contrary apparatus that encourages people to behave badly. that apparatus consisted of money, property rights, and their resultant pursuit of material self-interest unquote and I couldn't help but think of these two criticisms that go far beyond the scope that we're generally used to. When putting together this episode on scam culture, because I don't think that turning all of today's examples of scam companies into worker-owned cooperatives would get rid of all the scams. Not as long as we maintain the notions of mine and thine and value ourselves as sources of labor power. For members who want more on this, check out bonus episode 246 for more on Baudrillard's criticism of Marxism, and bonus episode 252 for more from the native Wendat, Aronk and his criticism of money in general, among other things. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or text message, WhatsApp or signal message, all with the same number, 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, web mastering and a bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes which include the episodes i just referenced number 246 and 252 In addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And to continue the discussion, join our Discord community to talk about the show or the news, other shows, anything you like.